Thank you, Life Team. Look, I want to stay in a spirit of um, consecration to God and um, a holy desire here this morning. So I'm going to um, <clears throat> just let you know uh, going into today's message that um, uh, for a couple of weeks now I've been praying for you, church, and I've been sensing God bringing a deeper work and a deeper consecration in you and got to witness that last week as we concluded our message and and saw the responsiveness of hearts and had multiple conversations with people who um, are really ready um, to leave complacent and comfortable Christianity, um, to leave impassivity, apathy, and indifference to God, and to move toward real dedication and devotion to God. And I'm praying for all of you who have been listening to God and responding to God in these last few weeks. I'm praying for you that at the deepest recesses of your being, in a way that only God can penetrate all the way to the core of your soul, um, you would find there a person that really wants to glorify God and be a pleaser of God, <clears throat> a real God-pleaser's heart. And I'm praying that for you. And I just tell you, I just want to give glory to God for the conversations that I've had with some members of our congregation last Sunday. Um, I really needed to get on the road, but I, I, I stayed because I knew the Lord wanted me to stay uh, a little bit longer. And uh, this man that um, I don't know all that well, I, I, I'm looking forward to get, getting to know him, him better, um, came up to me. And I just sensed that God had that moment for us, had that moment of calling us um, to himself. And, and um, so I said, um, I said, how you doing? You, you look like you need somebody to talk to. And, and uh, I don't know if it was Ethan Walters who came up and dedicated his life to Jesus Christ that morning or if it was the power of the preaching of the word. I definitely knew that the Holy Spirit was at work. And um, uh, so he said, well, Pastor, your sermon touched me this morning. And I said, baloney, you weren't touched. You were thrown. God's messing with you. And I want to know what's going on. I said, you know, is it time? Is it time that you crossed some kind of line? Is it time that you, you stepped across some kind of line? You came back and you folded yourself back in deeply into the church of Jesus Christ, deeply into the love of the Father, deeply into the work of the Spirit in your life. And he said, yes. And I said, well, why don't we do that right now? So about 80 or 90 feet from where I'm standing right now, out there, right out there next to that little welcome center, we just hugged each other and we prayed together. And we welcomed the work of Jesus in our hearts. And I'm just sensing that. And I'm even sensing that, that the Holy Spirit has something for us even today. And I want to challenge you men, especially in the room. You're going to hear a call to a revived heart and commitment. And that doesn't come anything from doing some type of a pep rally sermon for Jesus this morning or doing anything to excite you emotionally in any way whatsoever. It has to do, I believe, with the Holy Spirit wanting something that he has been given the right to ask for from God under the lordship of Jesus Christ who sent him into our hearts and lives and will now speak to us through his word. So I want you to be aware this morning that, that there's going to be a bit of a call this morning on your lives. And men, I want you to lead. I want you to lead well this morning. All right? Will you do that? 
I'm excited about um, this uh, section of the book of Acts chapter 5 that we're going to. This is really a rounding out of the experience of the early church in the first five chapters. There, after this, we, have ne- we will have taken these apostles and these early church followers all the way to the point of giving their lives away to the threat of death. Not to the threat of imprisonment, not to the threat of, of alienation and persecution, not to the threat of losing their jobs and their incomes, to the threat of ceasing to exist on this earth. That's where we will come and that's where we will see again because of a Holy Spirit-empowered work inside of them, they are pistuoed, they are convinced, they are persuaded to continue to obey. And one of the things that you're going to hear this morning is we are not battlers. We are not battlers, we are obeyers. All of us, we're just fighting some kind of battle right now. You're, fighting some kind of, you're trying to figure out how to get a win in your life right now. And you're reading books about how to do it. You're you're trying to lose weight, or you're trying to win an argument, or you're trying to get more income, or you're trying to do... You you have some kind of a battle that's in your life, right? You have conflict in your life, and you're trying to win that battle. And I'm here to tell you this morning, when we look at the passage that we're going to look at, it's not going to be about battling. It's going to, again, be obeying the one who battles for us when we look at the God who shows up in this text. And to do that, we're going to bring another brother and maybe sister up here to read. Um, uh, Joseph, where are you? I didn't see him. There he is. All right. Mara has got a little bit of a hip issue, so she's going to walk gently um, up here, and I'm going to find a microphone. This one? Oh, I think I'm loud enough. Yeah, I think, I think we need a microphone. This one here. Come stand um, by this microphone, okay? This is my friend Joseph. And his wife, Mara, and they have two beautiful daughters, Hannah and Caitlin. And Hannah is always excited to come to worship, isn't she? She's she's actually learning her days of the week based on when she goes to church. Yeah, awesome. Okay. And uh, so I met Joseph about a year ago and his wife about a year ago. And um, they come here, like really most people, a little bit dented from other church experiences, a little bit dented by their own uh, lifestyle and, and choices, and they've got a history and they've got a past both with uh, themselves and with God and all those things, but they came here eager to meet Jesus, and, and I believe that you, have, you really found him here in the worship and in the people and in the community here. So what they did was is they went to that class that Pastor Cameron just offered, and, and uh, you joined the church pretty quickly. I think you're even helping out a little bit already um, in the nursery and going to women's studies, and, and Joseph and I have gotten to know each other, and um, uh, went over to his house for his daughter's birthday, and, and uh, he was playing some strange game with a, a cousin of his. I couldn't even figure out what it was, but he loves the game, and he has a very unique um, way of, um, of, of having fun, and so he is one of the teammates that I have for the Frostbusters events, and he's the one that brings all of these games out so that uh, we can enjoy them uh, this Friday night even. Oh, we got tons. Yeah, great. And if you'll just step up to the microphone oh, yeah. just a little bit. Um, Joseph, you have a pretty interesting um, uh, testimony. I mean, we all do. We've been taken from death to life. But you have an interesting testimony. And um, sensing the Lord uh, giving more people courage to share, faith to share, and to open up, and to, to let, know, let it be known the goodness of God in their lives. And so, Joseph, could you just kind of explain um, to your uh, body, to your church family, kind of uh, how you came to know Jesus 
Sure. First of all, I'd like to say thank you to all you devoted Christian women out there. You are so important to all of us, and that's actually a very important part of why I'm a Christian right now. Uh, when I was 17, my mother asked me, uh, what would it take for you to be a Christian? And I said, okay, I can play this game. Someone has to sit down and answer all of my questions. And someone did exactly that. For months, a woman named Gwen answered every single question I had, and being a 17-year-old, and of course knowing more than anyone else on the planet, I had many, and she said one thing that no one had ever, anybody else had ever said to me. When I asked her a question, she didn't know the answer. She said, I don't know, but I'll find out. And <coughs> she did. And I was 18. Then, apparently decades wiser, and I ran out of questions. Everyone had been answered beyond my satisfaction, and I realized I could either be proud and stick to my ignorance or accept what had been proven as fact. And I accepted Jesus Christ when I was 18. And yeah. I was baptized just a few months after that. And now looking back on that, you know that wasn't just an intellectual exercise, right? No. You no. know that the Spirit of God was drawing you and Jesus Christ was revealing himself and in a way that we just, we, you know, that we don't even know how it happens, but the revelation of God through his son Jesus Christ was coming to your heart. Exactly. It's, it, it, I say he went through my head to get to my heart. Uh, Christianity is more than just a feeling. It is, it is absolute truth. Yeah. And that was proven to me both in my head and in my heart. Well, we're so glad that Joseph is fully persuaded that Jesus Christ is his Savior. And we're so glad, Mara, that you're fully persuaded as well and that you guys are leading your two girls to know Jesus Christ. In fact, I think Caitlin um, uh, came to me about six months ago, did she not? Yes, my, uh, my oldest, Caitlin, uh, accepted Christ at the age of four. And she already is, she's already read John. And she's working through Leviticus. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> I'm terrified having to explain some of those rules yeah, she's later. She's on verse 2 right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, church, can we just celebrate people knowing Jesus and following Jesus Christ as their Savior? Can we celebrate this kind of young and new family to our church? And, and um, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, I just celebrate, Joseph, that you're an unashamed follower of Jesus Christ and that our conversations are almost always about Jesus. Pretty and I just much. love that. I just love that about you. And uh, so what you did was is you plugged yourselves in in the church. Mari, you're going to a, a ladies' Bible study. That's taught by? Um, well, I went with uh, Nancy. Nancy Hurley. Um, actually, uh -huh. a year ago. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, about a year ago. Actually, today marks a year since we've been here. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So, wow, what an anniversary. Happy yeah, anniversary. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, someone yeah. will take you to lunch, I'm sure. It's women. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind. Um, so I went to Nancy's. Actually, I was invited by several women that first Sunday. And How great is that? How and great that you have an invitational church. Yeah. How great that there are people here that want people to come to Jesus and, and come into life with Jesus Christ. That's awesome. And then you guys plugged in in a new community group, right? Um, you're at a table with yep. um, uh, the Snellers and Nicholsons and Raymonds and on and on and on with a couple other young couples. It's just so awesome that you guys plugged in. Um, well, we love you, but it's now time for us now to go to a very high point 
um, in our service and to read the Word of God out loud. So, Joseph, you have that honor this morning. Could we stand for the reading of God's Word in Acts chapter 5? And thank you for asking. This is actually one of my favorite sections in the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 2942, correct? Uh-huh. Hey, share it without shame. Okay. Uh, this is from the New American Standard. Acts 5, 29 to 42. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. For we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who follow him were, dis were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present, ca in the present case, I say to you, stay, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But is, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on to their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's stay here and pray, just right at this place where we are. Father in heaven now, we welcome your work, and with hunger we come to your word to be fed and to be satisfied, and we also invite your Holy Spirit to have leadership in this time here together, to bring about whatever fruit, whatever response that it is you would call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. God bless you. All right. So the reason why we're backing up just uh, three verses is because they're so critical for the entire section that we're in, because I reminded you that the theme verse of the book of Acts is verse 8 of chapter 1, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, great Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and here again in verse 29 and 30 especially, you see that they are bound to be witnesses. They are committed to the witness of Jesus Christ, um, their Savior. And so the key verse that we're going to see here this morning is uh, verse 42, the final verse of this section that kind of comes to a close in the book of Acts. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And because we've been working on teaching the full counsel of God's Word, and we teach whole books of the Bible, Acts, um, we've been in for months together <clears throat> just to get through these five chapters. We know what all has come before. We know the full context. We know that these, these people have been threatened. We know that these people scattered and ran when Jesus went to the cross. We know that he promised his spirit to them, and tongues of fire came down in Acts chapter 2, and they had a glorious experience through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to speak the message of God to everyone in their own language. We know that as soon as they went to the uh, 
uh, temple to pray the next day. A lame man whom uh, Peter and John were able to heal along the way caused them to uh, get into their first arrest by the religious leaders there. We know Acts chapter 4 were again they're uh, uh, interrogated and, and held uh, by those religious leaders. And we know that they said uh, to them, hey, look, we can't help but say the things that we have come to know and believe. And they took note of these apostles, that they were unschooled and ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. And then we turn into chapter 5, and now a heightened persecution has occurred after an inner, inner work of the purification of the church in verses 1 through 11, where Ananias and Sapphira are struck down by the Holy Spirit by lying to God and lying uh, to God by lying to the Holy Spirit. Um, the church is purified and fear falls upon them. Anyone who is half-hearted and hypocritical stays away from the movement for fear that they would also be found out in their own hypocrisy. And a purification occurs with the church, and then further persecution comes. Now it's the entire apostles that are arrested this time and put in public prison to intimidate and to strike fear into the movement. And this is their response when we come to verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. So <clears throat> it's a simple question of loyal obedience for them, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the hardship that they face. The apostles answer and they let the Sadducees know that they're going to obey God rather than men. But they also bring the judgment hammer down to them. Look at verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. So much favor was upon Jesus Christ that his father raised him from the grave. But then it says, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree, on a tree. And you know from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, there's a statement, cursed is he who was hung on a tree. The religious leaders of the day wanted Jesus crucified on a cross. They wanted him crucified on those wood planks so that they could call him cursed. And yet these apostles are now saying, you killed the one that you think was cursed when actually he's infinitely blessed by his father. He was raised by his father. That's how much the father and the son agree with each other in this work that occurred on the cross. You're the ones that now face a curse. You who forced the death of Jesus are now facing your own death in your own sin. <clears throat> so they're going to stand and tell the truth of both judgment, but also of forgiveness. They're going to let these Sadducees know that they created the most heinous of all crimes, killing the one that God has raised up. And so, first of all, there's a judgment. There's a judgment. The apostles tell them that they are on a collision course of wrath. And that is what this world, this broken world that is under the curse of sin is on, is on a collision course of wrath. This is not a religion that's just here to make us feel better about ourselves, to keep us behaving as best we can. It is not a myth that was created through the centuries. It is about a real and sinless and miracle-working man named Jesus who came into the world through a miraculous incarnation, fully God and fully man, born sinless. 
and came and confronted this world with its sin and its separation from God. And then he went and he died for those sins so that we could be set free. And then he historically rose, just as these apostles explain right here. This truth the apostles are sharing is only weeks from their watching his ascension. Think about that. This truth that they're sharing is only weeks from watching his ascension. When they said this, they said, we are witnesses. Perhaps even when they said that, they heard the echoes of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my martyr. So not only did Peter at this moment proclaim Jesus has risen from the dead, he also made it clear that God had exalted Jesus to his right hand. And then he says then, as prince, or in maybe in your version, as leader and savior. And the word there is the same word in Acts chapter 3, verse 15, where he's called the prince of life, the leader of all life, the leader into all of life. Peter is making it abundantly clear that the kingdom that was expected to come, the kingdom that God wants to come, is coming through this prince who has moved now to that throne and ascended to that throne. It comes through Jesus. The word means author, it means leader, and Jesus is that rightful sovereign of the entire universe, the author of our salvation, of our faith, and our new life with God. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this is the witness that the apostles bring at this moment. Am I that witness? Are you that witness? Are you telling your personal world that Jesus Christ was crucified for sin, that the world is under a curse of sin? Are you willing to confront that one heart at a time. So there's a judgment, but then there's also a pleading that occurs. <clears throat> and see there, it says that God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Think about this now also. They are saying this to a people that have already whipped Peter and John. A people that have already accused them, have already imprisoned them. In a world that we live in, in a culture that we live in, if you bring it at me, I'm going to bring it back two times harder. These apostles are offering forgiveness, and they offer it to all of Israel, even the worst sin of all. You, you killed Jesus, whom God highly exalted. They offer forgiveness if they come to God through Jesus. And how can they do this? Because we know from the scripture, we know from that work of that sinless Savior that Jesus covers all sin. John 19.30, look at it on the screen. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What was Jesus saying on that cross right before he expired when he said, it is finished? His work for his father was finished. Jesus Christ said that his food was to do the will of his Father, and his Father sent him to do a work in this world. And that work was that the Son of God came not into the world that the world might be judged, but the entire world might be saved through him. So when Jesus Christ said, it is finished there on the cross, he said, there is no sin that can condemn, keep anyone in their condemnation. There is nothing that man can do 
that prevents God from forgiving man and giving man new life. Take a look at this picture here. The word for it is finished is tetelestai. And it really means it is finished. In first century, they would put that stamp on the cancellation of debts or on documents where whatever the business was, it was concluded, it, it didn't exist or matter anymore. Now, some have taken that and interpreted it, it is finished as the debt is paid in full because they're taking our 20th and 21st century idea of canceling a debt with the stamp of paid in full and putting it there. They're not exactly the same, and there isn't any evidence from the first century that that was really the meaning of it is finished. What it means is, is the work is done. The work is done. Whatever that deed, whatever that contract required, it was satisfied. And Jesus was saying on that cross, it's satisfied. The work is done. It is finished. And what we should hear from that is, is that we, no matter where we are, no matter how far we are away from God, no matter how much we have distanced ourselves in our sin and even loved that sin, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. We ought to be the people that say, no matter what, God forgives me. And that's exactly what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, when he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew the weight and the heaviness of his sin, rejecting Christ, going around and literally murdering and imprisoning Christians in the early part of, of, uh, of, of, of after the resurrection of Christ. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Come on, we've all been there, haven't we? You know that place, the place of the shame of our own sin, that rut that we've been stuck in, that sin that we said we'd stop committing and then we did it again. That doubting of that glorious truth that Jesus forgives me no matter what. And we have told ourselves, God cannot forgive me of this. We've, 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 we've stepped into that bad theology of personal and self-condemnation. I'll never recover from this. My feelings for God are waning. And yet we know even deeper in our hearts that the gospel calls us to the infinite grace of God. <clears throat> And I was there even last Sunday, standing and hugging one of, our, uh, one of our worshipers here. And we just prayed together and we rededicated ourselves. There's nothing. All of us come with baggage, just like Joseph and Mara. All of us come with dents and scars and, and difficulties and hardships. And all of us come, even now, struggling with sin, something that so easily besets us and takes us off of this race to the finish line with Jesus. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We can walk in the victory of Jesus and liberty from that sin. These apostles told the worst of sinners, the very people that enforced the murder of Jesus, that forgiveness is offered to all of Israel, all of Israel. And then we see then that there's a wild irony here in this, both this judgment and this appeal that is being made. And this is the irony that the very people whose lives are at stake 
are offering new life to those that are seeking their death. Did you hear that? The very people whose lives are at stake are offering new life to those that are seeking their death. Those religious leaders and Sadducees that have them arrested and are going to get real mad here in a second, real angry, that they're ready to slay, the scripture says. They're secure. They've got the power. They're going home and having a nice dinner in their homes while these homeless witnesses of Jesus from all different places still there in Jerusalem who are threatened to the point now of losing their lives, they're offering life to those that are seeking their death. And that's you and that's me, church, in the 21st century. We're offering life to a world that is dying would we be so bold as these to do that? On a day where we affirm the sanctity of life and we stand against abortion as the killing of innocent life and we, where we stand against all reckless disregard for life, where we stand with God as the giver, as the sustainer, as the recreator and the preserver of all life, are we going to be people that offer life to a culture that actually is steeped in death? A culture that sometimes loves death but certainly promises death. So let's ask the question, who's going to triumph here as we head from verse 32 to verse 33 in the section? Who will triumph? And the answer is this in this section. All sides are working for one sovereign plan. Look at this. Look at this. It says there that now someone rises up. After they're so angry, they're ready to slay these apostles. So to do that, what they've got to do is they've got to get a vote of the entire Sanhedrin to kind of like throw out the rule book altogether and just everybody be agreed. Let's kill them. Kill them now. Don't worry about uh, uh, showing any deference to government, any deference to the people. Just kill them now. So everybody's got to be agreed on the Sanhedrin that's mixed with Sadducees and with Pharisees as well. And there are two schools of the Pharisees, the Hillel and the Shammai. And Gamaliel, the one who stands up and speaks, he's the leader of the Hillel movement at this time. He was a student under Hillel who was... Um, who brought this philosophy of interpretation to Jewish law during the time of Herod the Great, who had just died a few years um, earlier um, in uh, 4 or 5 B B.C., right, at the right after the time of Jesus' birth. And so uh, Hillel had, was, had one camp of school, and, and, and then when you look at it from a Jewish historical perspective, that Hillel camp was a more inclusive and maybe a slightly more liberal camp than the Shammai a camp that was also led under um, this individual that rose up there in the first century and created these two camps of the Pharisees. And while you say, okay, well, there's only two camps of the Pharisees, um, that's pretty good. Um, the Talmud teaches that there are at least 300 differences of interpretation between the Hillel and the Shammai in regard to Torah alone. So these guys usually were like this, and they're on the Sanhedrin together. But now they're furious. Now they're enraged. They got to get everybody to vote together to get rid of these apostles. And so Gamaliel stands up and he says, he gives these two examples. First of all, they, these apostles get 
put outside. Notice that phrase. They get, they get pushed out to the side here for a second. And we don't hear any conversation from the apostles. The scripture is silent about what's going on with those apostles who are kind of just kind of in the tension of that moment of going, do you think they're all going to vote yes to kill us or what? We, we don't know what they are thinking or saying to each other. We only know the conversation that Gamaliel strikes up. And he gives these two examples. And they're pretty easy straw men, really. Really, they're pretty easy straw men. He says, Thutis and this other guy, Judas. And they rise up, and within days, they're all killed, and they're all gone. So if this is of God, it'll continue. But if it's of man, it'll stop. And hey, by the way, you don't want to be accused of fighting against God. Is that prophetic or what? And here, the truth of the matter is, Gamaliel presents an incorrect but convincing argument. This is not a correct argument. Hear this clearly, Christian. It's an incorrect argument that still even God uses. It's an incorrect argument that says whatever succeeds must be what God blesses. And that's an incorrect argument that's a heresy in the church today. we got to go and follow after wherever there are churches that are exploding and growing and wherever they're giving us these wonderful feelings and we walk out really touched by Jesus. we got to go where we see success and where we see growth. That's not true. That's not what God blesses. God blesses the obedient, period. But Gamaliel says this anyway. And he says, if it succeeds, it must be what God blesses. And so the Sadducees, they back down. They're still brutal. They still punish them. And they beat them all up. And they give them a floggy. The 39 lashes minus one. It was called that because they figured if you had 40, it might kill you. And these apostles, they lay down their lives and they leave rejoicing that they shared in the suffering for the gospel. And they're all about the name of Jesus. We did it in the name of Jesus. And so what can we take from this section right here? First of all, there's some more no matter what. No matter what, God will forgive you. We saw that in the first section. No matter what, God's going to win. That's the truth. That's the truth of this section. No matter what, God is going to win. No matter what... Those who fight God are going to fail in the end. No matter what, the obedient followers of Jesus under the leadership of the Holy Spirit are not going to cease to do what God has called them to do. Really what you're seeing here as we head into verses 41 and 42 is a triumph of obedience. It's a triumph of obedience. You say, well, how did they have this power? How did they have this conviction? So let's just, just, just for a second, let's just play that wonderful game of imagining what they were doing outside in those moments. What were they thinking of? Did they have a vision of Jesus triumphing over the grave? Did they hear again the echoes of, you will be my witnesses? Or did they hear the echo of the teaching of Jesus, you want to be my disciple? Then take up your cross. And follow me. Did they hear that cost of discipleship that said, you got to be willing to die physically, spiritually, you got to be willing to take up death to live the life that I want you to live for me? Did they huddle together and say, are we agreed? Are we agreed? The Holy Spirit's all over this. Come what may, we're going to continue to obey. What did they say? And what we need 
to recognize again, as the book of Acts has been teaching all along, these people are under the lordship of Jesus Christ through the administration of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is guiding and leading this process with them. We're not battlers, we are obeyers. The battle belongs to the church. And someone says at this moment, well, shouldn't the church today be like the Acts church? I mean, are the possibilities and the potentialities there today as they were then? Well, sure. Has the Holy Spirit somehow weakened or departed in some way? And soon they arrive at the question, well, then why aren't we? And what do we need to repent of to be the kind of people in this culture that obey no matter what? So can we talk just for a minute about no matter what and in everything matters age? Look at verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So there's two things here. First, they rejoice in worthy suffering. It says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Maybe again echoes of you will be my witnesses. In a culture where we suggest that God blesses what is successful, this flips us entirely in our understanding. And we see no matter what worthy opinion of being a witness for Jesus is. And second of all, we see this. They consistently and personally witnessed to the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what they did. Every day in the temple from house to house, there's a clear sense that this was not a, hey, come to us, come to our church, and maybe you'll hear about Jesus. It was a mentality that was not a cherry-picking mentality. It was, not, it was not a billboard mentality. It was a personal witness of going and saturating the community that God gave them the opportunity to share with them. They consistently and they personally witness to the truth about Jesus. And you say, am I this kind of mythetes? Am I this kind of disciple as they were? We, they were. There's this uh, phrase going around. It's called FOMO. Most of you know what it means. It means fear of missing out. And that's what this culture is selling us today. That uh, don't commit to anything. Hold off your commitment to the very last second because something better might come along. Watch just one more YouTube video because that 10,000th video that you watch will, will finally be the one that really tickles you and, and it's the funniest one ever and you can finally press the like button on Facebook. We have this fear of missing out. And so we hold back our lives and we, we try to reserve our lives. And so while we're reserving our lives, we're also experimenting with just about everything without any type of a purposeful, moral, or theological lens at all. We're just trying to take it all in and then decide probably, I don't know, when we're 90 years old, oh, this was what life is all about. This is what's most meaningful. And yet the scripture clearly shows us the person who has said, I have decided to follow Jesus and comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the leadership of his Holy Spirit has the heart of a God pleaser and is thrilled most with pleasing God. But this culture is ruining that thrill. Of pleasing God. Can you go ahead and flip to that, the FOMO age? Yeah, there you go. This culture is ruining the thrill of pleasing God today. 
We're saying, hey, what should please me? What will please me? We're going out as an experimenter, as if life is something that's supposed to be tasted and tried when Jesus has shown us that he is the prince of this life. Jesus has promised us a bonnet life, and we're walking in false faith. Hear me clearly, church. False faith begins when we decide what we will not do for Jesus. And the apostles in the early church movement were confronted with this pretty constantly in the first five chapters of the book of Acts. Were they not? Are you going to do this for Jesus? <laughs> Are you going to do this for Jesus? Are you going to do that for Jesus? And what we see is some no matter what apostles. What we see is a, a no matter what culture of the early church that was willing to obey God no matter what. Ageth Fernando, in his commentary, says it this way. The attitude of worthy loss is not natural to us. Do you get that? He's saying taking a loss, taking a loss just today just feels like a loss. We lost something. Taking a worthy loss isn't natural to any of us. Usually when we are ridiculed in public or punished for the gospel, we get angry and resentful in part perhaps because we think we should look victorious in public. And it's clear that there were long periods when biblical heroes looked anything but victorious. But they were propelled by the vision of God's ultimate victory and the belief that their temporary defeats were contributing to, a, to winning a great victory for the kingdom. Listen, listen, church, we have a culture that doesn't feel good unless it looks good. And we have a culture that feels good only if it feels good things. And it's not the gospel. It's not the life that God wants for us. But you, Christian, you're not supposed to be driven by seeking success and insulating yourself from failure. Seeking good feelings and insulating yourself from the bad. Your life mo motivation is not an easy win and it will never be. Your life motivation is not painting the best picture of yourself. I went around all week long and I met with families because I've now got to go out and recruit uh, for my mission with FCA. And I met with families and I would tell them my story of how God has been rebuilding and reshaping my heart. And I have this new heart of the thrill of a God pleaser. And they would say back to me, we're hungry for that. We want something like that. We're in our church, and we're disappointed in this. We're disappointed in that, and we're hungry for this. We don't see this. Where is this? Where is this? Where is this? And I go, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for some feeling? Do we need one more Chris Tomlin song to come on the radio for us to finally push us over some kind of edge? Do we need one more good thing to happen to finally feel like, okay, our surfboard is finally catching the wave of success so that we can believe that God is blessing us? Or do we need to stand in the thrill of pleasing Jesus and know that God blesses those that obey, period? And so I sat across from a man. Remember, I've told you the story about Josh. I told you about Josh. He's the baptizer. Click, click, baptizer, click, baptize. And he'd take me into the pool at Johnny and Friends, and he shoved me down like 11, 15 times. Baptize, yeah, yeah. He's the one who would say, Pastor Clint, Jesus is coming? I say, Josh, he's coming soon. He'd go, ha, <laughs> And this story isn't about Josh. It's about his dad. I'm sitting there at a table with him, talking about God's call upon my life. And he said, Clint, you know, your story really inspires me. And he goes, look, I, I, need, to, 
I need to redouble my prayer time and, and my scripture time. I need to be in a, a group of accountability. I need this, I need this. And I said, do you hear yourself? Do you hear yourself? Convincing yourself in your flesh that you're going to double your flesh and you're going to do better? Do you hear yourself? What you need is to be convinced by the Holy Spirit of God right now to surrender and submit to God. What you need right now is to stop everything and come under the lordship of Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit lead you into a new place of holy desire and holy surrender. What you need to do is dedicate your life right now. And he looked back at me for 10 solid seconds, and I held his gaze. And he said, I agree. And so I said, so let's do it. How shameful of us to walk in false faith, thinking that something more needs to come to us. Some new feeling needs to come. Wait, wait, we need to change our circumstances and then we'll follow Jesus. We, we need something better before we get better. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 14. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This coming from that same apostle who spoke that day in Acts chapter 5, the one who denied Christ hours before his death, hours after his arrest, and now he is saying, let's rejoice in suffering because the spirit of the Lord really rests upon us in glory at that moment. Doesn't that move your soul? To see that kind of transformation in that life wrought by the Holy Spirit in that person's life. Pastor, come up and, and lead us in, in uh, just simple worship. Do this. Hey, um, I have three Sundays with you, and I treasure them. I literally covet them um, left. And uh, then the pulpit will be um, utilized by other very capable ministers of the gospel and um, I sense that God is bringing us to this point where the last two weeks that I'm with you, I'm going to be talking about abundant life, the true abundant life that we can have in Christ, of having the heart of a God-pleaser and completely surrendering to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to not sow flesh, which leads to, which leads to destruction, but to sow the Spirit, which leads to eternal life. And I feel like God is just working with us, church. I'm, I, I'm seeing, sensing, and truly experiencing life change happening among, among people. Come tell me your story. I want to meet with you afterwards. Or men of the church right now. If you're hearing the call of God to be a no matter what Christian, to have a no matter what God, an unstoppable God, a no matter forgiving God, to believe those things and allow those to settle into your soul so that then, by the work of God's Spirit in your life, you can say, I'm going to be a no matter what believer. And I'm going to lead my family better than I'm leading my family. And we're going to be a family that reads the Bible, no matter what media and all this world throws at us. We're going to fight against FOMO, fear of missing out. We're going to make sure that we don't miss out on loving Jesus Christ together as a family and following him. You want a no matter what house, home? 
Ladies, right now, elbow him right now. Just let him know that's what you want to. Let him know, ladies. Give him a good sharp elbow. Okay, I'll wait for my elbow at about 1 o'clock this afternoon. And just in this time of worship, please do holy business with God. Just meet with the Lord. See what God has to say to you. I believe he wants to bring a harvest, even today. I want to visit with you. And again, I'm going to let him, Pastor, conclude the service. I'm going to go out there into that narthex because I'm really looking forward to seeing what Jesus would do. All right, Father in heaven, now meet. Seal the work of your word. Spirit, take control, take charge. Jesus, be Lord in this ring. In Jesus' name, amen.